Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, July 16th, 2021. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news. My name is Ben Pearson. I am a senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I am joined on today's episode by SlashFilm senior writer and chief film critic, Chris Evangelista. Hello. All right. So, uh, Chris, there's a lot of um, controversy swirling right now around a movie called Roadrunner, colon, a film about Anthony Bourdain. And it is a documentary, as the the title would imply, about Anthony Bourdain, who is a celebrity chef and um, author and television personality who died by suicide in 2018. It was a very super popular um yeah, like TV host character. And this, this movie uh, is, uh, is out now in theaters. And it was directed by a guy named Morgan Neville, who directed films like 20 Feet from Stardom and Won't You Be My Neighbor. And there is, uh, there's some controversy about this movie. But I guess before we get into that, I just want to play my interview that I did recently with uh, Morgan Neville. So um, we talk about the controversy. Well, we don't get into the the controversial aspects of of it really, because uh, during the very end of our conversation, um, he revealed this this thing, uh, basically that an artificial intelligence program was used to create some of the voiceovers 
for this movie. So um, I just figured we'd play the whole interview with him and then you and I can talk about uh, the implications of that and, and sort of what is going on there. So uh, before we get into it, here is my interview with Morgan Neville. All right. Hi, Morgan. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. Um, so let's start at the beginning. Do you remember your first exposure to Anthony Bourdain? Kitchen Confidential. Actually, actually, he published an article in the New Yorker before Kitchen Confidential um, that caused a stir. And I read that article. Um, like at was, the time that it was published? Yeah, at the time. That's how old I am. Uh <laughs> And I read that article and then when Kitchen Confidential came out, it was definitely the kind of thing that people passed around and said, yeah, you got to read this book. Um, and I did, you know, and then I didn't really pay that much attention for a while, you know, cause then he had a, you know, Cook's tour eventually for a couple of years. And, but I wasn't watching the food network on basic cable a whole lot in those days. And, but as you know, once he got into no reservations and then he started just appearing more places. And I started saying, oh, this, I liked watching him. Like I, it wasn't appointment TV for me, but it was like a lot of people, like when he was on, like I get sucked into it, you know, and I ended up reading Medium Raw, his second kind of autobiography at one point. So, and then it was really um, a lot of his other, like I followed him on Twitter and you know, like Twitter was built for somebody like Anthony Bourdain, you know, just for a smart, snarky you know, person like Bourdain, Twitter was a godsend um, and he loved it, you know. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it, so I liked him, but I hadn't thought that deeply about him other than, you know, I knew through a bunch of my friends who were writers and food people kind of how important he was for them. Um, you know, and even helping my friends who's starting Lucky Peach magazine, he kind of helped get that off the ground in the beginning and, and had an imprint of his own through his publisher where he was publishing, published my friend Chris Ying's book um, and a few other, you know, like he was, like, I just got a sense of like, he was a righteous guy who was walking the walk and you yeah. know, not just talking the talk. Right on. Um, so the narrations that he wrote for his shows, I think like a lot of people were some of my favorite aspects of those programs. And I assume that you had access to all of those files when you were making this movie. How on earth did you go about the gargantuan task of combing through all of this archival footage and audio to create a cohesive story in this movie? I mean, so just the, so I had this idea that to make a film about Bourdain and not have him in some way narrate it would just feel odd. And so as I thought about it, I started thinking about Sunset Boulevard, the movie and William Holden narrating from beyond the grave. And I was like, okay, like this is, has to be, this is, you know, that that's my homage to it. Uh, and then when I looked at- I mean, that at, seems like something that he would have loved, right? Like- <laughs> I think he would have loved it, but this is the, the kicker that when I started watching old episodes of the early shows, Cook's Tour, season one, he does an episode on LA at the Chateau Marmont and he films himself floating face down in the pool. Wow. And, you know, just, and I was like, okay, like he's already ahead of me on this. Like, <laughs> um, and so then I got not only all of his voiceover, which we got all those sessions, but every book on tape and podcasts and radio interviews. And I went through all of it and every, anything that 
felt like a really substantive line we put into a spreadsheet basically we ended up with like a 500 page spreadsheet that i organized by theme so if it was tony talking about food or talking about travel or talking about childhood or whatever we organized it that way and so i had this binder of kind of tony on everything and there was a moment a very fleeting moment in the beginning where i just thought should i not interview anybody and just have tony narrate the entire film <laughs> you know um Although I knew that wouldn't work. I mean, that was just like an interesting conceit because the fact of the matter is like as great as a writer and narrator as he was, you know, he had big blind spots about himself too. <laughs> and that I was never going to get those in his voice. Yeah, I mean, that was actually my next question. He was such a, like an incisive and insightful and often profound analyst of history and politics and societies and often himself, but not always. So I was wondering how you navigated how much of this story should be told in his words versus, you know, how much of it should be told by the people that knew him. So it sounds like you were grappling with that pretty early on. Yeah. I mean, I know at the end of the day, he couldn't tell that much of the story, you know, particularly in his backstory. I mean, he did, he was his own best subject. You know, he, always wrote about himself and, you know, analyzed even a book like Medium Rock, Hitch Confidential, you know, he was a memoirist, you know, always. And, and he loved kind of memoir, you know, whether it's Down and Out in Paris and London, which is one of his all-time favorite books, the George Orwell book about working in kitchens uh, in the thirties, or maybe it's even the late twenties, but I think it was the thirties um, that, you know, he, he did tell a lot of his own story in a really entertaining way. And even going back and looking at Kitchen Confidential, the thing that struck me was how kind of world weary he is in that book. You know, he wrote it when he was 43 and there's a tone in there of like, I've seen it all. I've lived, lived it all, you know, kind of my story's over. <laughs> and his story hadn't even really begun, which right. is crazy. But there's this passage in Kitchen Confidential that I, for a while, had in the rough cut of the film and I took it out. But it's to your point where he, he has this speech he gives um, where he says, to paraphrase, you know, uh, if I'm walking across the street and get hit by an ice cream truck someday uh, and I'm lying in the street and they're pulling the bumper out of my head and I'm just drawing my last breaths, you know, am I going to regret that I didn't, eat a certain thing or travel to a certain place. No, I'm only going to regret how I disappointed those around me who cared about me. You know, it was like, he wrote that when he was 43. Wow. So, so even though, you know, he, he was also very good at owning his own flaws. Yeah. I guess is what, what that is. Yeah, certainly. Um, so in addition to being a recounting of his trajectory, to me, this movie is sort of about the impossible task of trying to capture the real version of someone. And even armed with all of these tools that you had, the archival footage, the talking heads and his social media posts and stuff like that, how close do you think that you got to getting to the heart of who Bourdain really was in this movie? You know, I always feel like my films are about questions more than answers and the idea of kind of 
that, oh, yep, you got it, you know, that, that, that it was just tidally summed up is so unbordanian. Um, I mean, there's a quote of his I found after I finished the film where he said, you know, the root of most of the world's problems are, can be attributed to people trying to find a simple, funky, fucking answer. <laughs> and that the gray of what, what existed in life was kind of where the interesting stuff happens. And I think Bourdain too is somebody who was a, an immensely protean character who was always kind of shape-shifting. He was slightly different with different people, you know, and that what I kept coming back to, not only this, but in most of my films, I just, I'd say, I'm just trying to get an essence of like a real essence of who this person is. It's not all the, the truth. It's not all of the dimension, but it's feeling like, yeah, you, they're, you really feel like you kind of understand an essence of who this guy is. And hopefully we got that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how did you decide, you know, we we're talking about Kitchen Confidential earlier and that's sort of almost being the start of his story and, and in your movie, that kind of is the start of the story. How did you decide yeah. that as the, the starting point here? I mean, a couple of reasons. I mean, one was I didn't want to make a six hour film, <laughs> you know, and part of it is, you know, there's also no footage of that era at all. And, and I just felt like telling that whole story as great as it is, just would have been a little bit like playing a greatest hits album of like, oh, you read the book and you want to meet the characters and you want to hear all the stories that Tony told and, you know, nothing really changed though for Tony throughout the whole period. You know, I mean, what is where I kind of wanted to begin was the end of that life. Right. You know, the first act of the film is the end of the kitchen confidential years, the end of him being in the kitchen mm -hmm. and then kind of all the transformations that come after it. So again, that was me feeling like I'm just trying to kind of take a, a deep sliver of a person's life and hopefully get something out of it rather than trying to be Wikipedia. You know, yeah. which I think like a lot of times documentaries do. And like, I just, that's for me kind of uh, a hard thing to chase. Yeah, yeah. Um, was there any, I think I probably have time for like a couple more questions here. Uh, was there anything yeah. um, that you learned during the research phase that really surprised you about Bourdain? I mean, I think his own insecurity, you know, I mean, part of that is maybe, Chinese, but but not even. I mean, I just think this this sense that so many people told me he just had incredible imposter syndrome that he always felt maybe it was because he had success so late in life and it was so life changing that that he just didn't trust it. He didn't feel like he deserved it. Yeah, because um, people told me even up until the end he was. He would feel like oh, I can't, I'm getting away with something like, and I think it's kind of, I mean, part of me feels like he maybe intentionally, you know, nurtured that kind of feeling because the other part of that is that he was very unaware of his importance mm. and, you know, I think he would have been shocked by the, the impact his death had on people. I know people 
who are in his little world with him were utterly shocked by it. Yeah. But I think he intentionally, even he says in the film, like, I'm not a journalist. I'm not trying to inspire people, you know, and, and I think he just always had this idea of like, I'm just doing a little cable show or I just write my little books. You know, it's, it's also kind of just like a survival mechanism in a way, maybe hmm. to feel like um, that he's not important. You know, he hasn't earned it in a way, you yeah. know, it kept yeah. him motivated, but also kept him insulated. Yeah. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about this, uh, this binder that you were talking about? I'm, I'm still caught up on that. The idea that you, you guys went through all of this stuff and had everything yeah. sort of organized well, by theme. I'll, like- I'll tell you one other thing, which I've only talked a little bit about, but I'm happy to talk about it because I thought it was interesting is that, um, so when I wanted him to voice all of the narrations, there were a number of things he wrote in his books that he never said anywhere. Um, or he wrote an article, but he had never voiced them. Um, so we actually spent months creating an AI model of his voice. No way. And a few of the narrations in the film are actually an AI Tony saying those lines. Wow. Which is interesting. I'm like, I want to ask you what they are, but I also kind of don't just because I couldn't, obviously couldn't tell. I didn't know that. Um, so I wonder how much of that would be puncturing things. Or, or, do you want to say if there's any, any one? I mean, I'll, tell, I'll tell you off the record. I mean, I, you know, I, deep fakes and all that are very ethically murky, but I, I definitely talked to his literary agent and his, you know, I talked to everybody to kind of make sure that we're on board. We weren't putting words in his mouth. We were merely trying to right. kind of articulate things he had already said. Yeah. That's um, gotta be the big difference. I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, I don't want to take up any more of your time, but thank you very much for speaking with me. And, and I really enjoyed the film. I was a big uh, fan of his. And, and when he passed, I like still had, you know, a few episodes of the show on my DVR and I just like, couldn't ever get around to watching them. So your movie was my way of finally like jumping back into that world and engaging. I feel like a lot of people are probably going to be in that camp as well. So, um, thank you for making this and, and doing a good of course. job with it. Yeah. It's great talking to you. All right, Chris. So before you and I really dissect this, um, what did you think about Roadrunner, uh, overall before we get into the, the controversy of it all? Uh, I thought it was pretty good. I think um, it, it's weird because I feel like it, it glosses over a lot of stuff. Like I get that it, it primarily wanted to cover Anthony Bourdain's fame, but I feel like the movie starts uh, literally like as he's becoming like a, you know, a big deal because of his book mm-hmm. and his, you know, but he was like, I think he was like 41 or 42 or he was in his forties when yeah. that happened. And he had a, you know, a life and a career before that. And they really don't touch on that at all. And I thought that was a little like I wanted more, I guess. And I also feel like um, the last half of the film gets it gets very close to being uh, icky. I don't know if that's mm. a, te- a technical term right there, but <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you can call it like spoilers because it's a documentary, but. Basically, um, you know, the, the last half of the film is about uh, Anthony Bourdain's relationship with uh, Asia Argento, who is um, a filmmaker, and she's the daughter of Dario Argento, the, the famous horror director. And uh, it, um, she's not interviewed at all. And I had a thought 
they asked her to be in the movie and she said no. But I read recently that they didn't even like reach out to her, which also feels kind of weird to me because Mm -hmm. that last half of the movie is basically all of Anthony Bourdain's friends talking about how much they just hate Asia Argento. And and look, like they're going to have that inside knowledge. Like they actually, you know, knew her and knew him. So uh, I don't think they're like making stuff up, but I feel like the movie comes very, very close to being like, Anthony Bourdain killed himself because of Asia Argento. And that's, and look, you know, I'm not saying that like something in the relationship didn't like inspire him to take his life, but that it's not the same thing of being like, ah, it's her fault. Right. 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 And And so it seems like, you know, if that was a part of it, it was, it was just that it was a, you know, one component of a larger thing because, you know, the, the movie showcases, uh, several points over the years where Bourdain is constantly talking about death and taking his own life. And he seems like he's joking at some points and he seems like he's kind of serious at other points. So um, I don't know if, yeah, it's, it's certainly not fair to hang uh, all of that on this one woman, this one relationship that he had. And the movie doesn't do that, but it, I, I kind of agree with you. I feel like it comes pretty close. And then because it spends so much time on that relationship that that he had and and sort of how toxic it was and then the movie like goes out of its way to um to try to not blame her like one of the characters i think specifically says like look i don't think that <laughs> you know that this is 100% her fault kind of thing and so that feels like morgan neville and the, the rest of the filmmaking team trying to let themselves off the hook a little bit um but uh but yeah i can see how the word icky uh might might apply right. there. Yeah. And it's, you know, and again, like I said, like, you know, those people knew the people interviewed in the movie knew Anthea Bourdain and they knew it, Ozzy Argento. So if they say, you know, being around Ozzy Argento isn't fun, that's pretty much the, the theory they put forth. I have to take their word for it. At the same time, like I said, the fact that they didn't even try to reach out to her to interview really does not sit well with me. I don't even like, like Ozzy Argento that much, but it just seems weird that like they didn't at least like send her an email or something. Yeah. I, I think I read in, um, it might've been Rolling Stone. If not, forgive me, please. But, uh, I think Neville was saying like, you know, he didn't want to reach out because he was afraid that it would just turn into like a, he said, he said, she said kind of scenario. And like, I guess they, you know, this is me speculating now, but I think he, maybe he just like, didn't want to, make that section of the movie that much longer and like open up, you know, this whole other like perspective or something. So he just decided to keep it focused there. That That's the only sort of, um, you know, justification that I can come up with for not including her there. Um, okay. So I, I guess, I mean, are there any other uh, topics that you wanted to, to, or aspects of this movie that you wanted to, to highlight before we get into the controversy, Chris? Uh, no, none that I can think of. You know, okay. I, I, like I said, I thought, it, I thought it was a, a, overall it was a pretty good movie. I feel like people are like, especially after this controversy, I, I, I'm seeing some people who are like, this movie is abysmal. And it's like, all right, let's, let's calm down. It's really not that bad. Yeah. I, I, I think I enjoyed it for the most part. I, I did like you wish that it would have gone a little bit back, a little bit more back into his past and sort of um, laid some more groundwork there. But when I, I mean, as listeners will have just heard Neville say this, but when I asked him why the kitchen confidential uh, portion was the the starting point, he basically said that he didn't want to do like a greatest hits kind of uh, approach to Bourdain's career. And I think he's going in 
expecting he's he was approaching this expecting that a lot of people who are going to watch this movie have read that book and are you know more familiar with the earlier uh, elements of Bourdain's life because he has talked about them so much um but i think for you know maybe a passive viewer somebody who just like tuned in occasionally to watch no reservations or or um you know any of his, his other shows they may be left wanting a little bit more there so um, all right. So, uh, well, Chris, why don't you sort of set up the controversy and what you've heard about it and, and we can uh, go from there. Right. So um, throughout the movie, uh, it's almost like Anthony Bourdain is sort of narrating the film. And I accepted that as you know normal because there's so much footage of Anthony Bourdain. You know, he has all the shows he did and all the behind the scenes footage and all the interviews he did. So. I was just like, all right, they they clearly pulled all this audio from that. But there's this one part where um, he sends this really just sort of like bleak, uh, maybe you could even call it suicidal email to someone. And they have audio of him reading it. And I remember distinctly thinking this as I was watching the movie. I was like, when did he, when did Anthony Bourdain record himself reading this email? And I was just like, that's that's odd. But I didn't really think much of it because it sounds exactly like his voice and uh, you know, there's nothing in the movie that says anything else. There's no like disclaimer that pops up on the screen that says, you know, this isn't Anthony Bourdain's voice or whatever like that. So I was just assuming, you know, he, at some point he must've read this email for some reason and recorded mm-hmm. it. But as it turns out, Morgan Neville revealed in, um, he, he told this to you and he told us a few people in other interviews that he put together basically like an Anthony Bourdain AI soundboard and he was able to digitally put together the sound of Anthony Bourdain's voice reading this, this email. So it's not really him reading it. It's, it's like a computerized version, but it sounds, you know, exactly like the real Anthony Bourdain Mm -hmm. reading the note. And that's, that's rubbing a lot of people the wrong way. And I, I, um, I think the reason is, well, you know, I think there are multiple reasons. One reason is I think it's just, based on the way Anthony Bourdain died. Like, I feel like if Anthony Bourdain had died of natural causes or whatever you want to call it, people would not be this perturbed by this. But Mm. I think it's the fact that, you know, he died by suicide and this email could be taken as suicidal. And the fact that they're digitally recreating that is, again, there's that word. It's a little icky. And um, again, I also feel like the controversy is because there's nothing in the movie that, that clarifies this. Like, you know, when you watch like a Ken Burns documentary, like the civil war, there will be people reading other people's words, but we, we know what's going on there because obviously no, there's no audio <laughs> recordings from the civil war. <laughs> and at the, you know, the, there'll be credits at the end that says like, so-and-so's voice was read by, you know, Peter Coyote and stuff like that. So, right. so we know it's, a, it's a dramatization. It's, it's not accurate. And, as far as I can tell, there's nothing like that in this movie. And I feel like that's what's like throwing everyone off because it's like, well, what the, what the fuck Morgan Neville? It's kind of like he was like trying to keep it a secret until he admitted it during these interviews. Yeah. I mean, he brought it up to me, which was, which, which I thought was strange. Um, but like, you know, he was clearly like, uh, so I, just to be clear, I spoke with him before you know all the sort of controversy bloomed so um i I don't know if he would have brought this up to me of his own accord uh you know if we did this interview three days after we actually recorded it um but uh 
yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, he said when he was talking to me, like that he reached out to like his literary agent and, um, I have this quote from Variety here where he says, I checked with his widow and his literary executor just to make sure people were cool with that. And they were like, Tony would have been cool with that. I wasn't putting words into his mouth. I was just trying to make them come alive. Uh, and interestingly, his widow, whose name is Octavia, who is uh, interviewed in the documentary, she quote tweeted that Variety um, interview and said, I certainly was not the one who said Tony would have been cool with that. And a lot of people have retweeted that and that has sort of like spurred, uh, I guess, a new round of conversation around this whole thing because I was I was sort of in the camp of, yeah, this is a little weird, but I guess, you know, if it's his own words and, uh, you know, he is like so well known for his narrations and, um, you know, maybe, uh, you know, as long as his widow signed off on it, as long as, you know, the people in his life close to him signed off on it. Maybe they know him. I mean, certainly they know him better than I do. Uh, my wife and I were, were talking about this and, and she was just like, this seems like something that he would have hated. <laughs> like he would right. not have been cool with that. Um, and, but I was like, okay, I mean, I guess if they said it's fine, but now that his widow is saying that she didn't sign off on that, I'm wondering what those conversations <laughs> were actually like between her and, and Morgan Neville. Like when, when he was speaking with me, he was like, you know, I said his literary agent and, and he sort of like trailed off. He, it sounded like he was going to say his, his, that he spoke with Bourdain's widow, but he didn't. So I don't know what's going on there. Um, that's right. like a, a new wrinkle in this whole thing. But, um, I mean, Chris, did you, uh, did you watch a lot of Bourdain stuff before he passed? How familiar with, with him were you? No, you know, I, I obviously knew who he was and I, you know, I, I knew of him and I knew what he did, but I never actually really watched his shows. I was just aware of them. And I've, I've watched a few since his death, but I, I didn't really watch them beforehand. I'm sorry to say. Yeah. I mean, I've seen, I'm not like a, a diehard fan. I actually have not read kitchen confidential yet, although I bought it recently and it's on my shelf of things to read. But um, yeah, I, I've seen, you know, several of the shows watch for, for a few years there. And uh it does seem like, you know, like all of the, the movie homages and all that kind of stuff, like the, the film goes out of its way to show that like Bourdain was a, a huge movie fan. And so like the way that this film sort of frames a lot of the uh, the references and, and sort of creates its own movie mood, all of that stuff, I feel like is really in line with, you know, his interests and his likes and, and stuff like that. But yeah, this this uh, this AI thing, even though it is his own words, um, it just... Neville says, I was just trying to make them come alive. And I, I wonder if there would have been a better, <laughs> I mean, obviously since this controversy is happening, there is a better way to have done this. Um, do you have a, any suggestions, Chris? I mean, uh, like it's easy for us to say now, you know, playing Monday morning quarterback or whatever, yeah. like looking back on this, but do you think that there's a, um, a different way that, that this could have been uh, effectively used in this movie? Yeah. You know, I, I really do think uh, I, I mentioned this before, like if, Morgan Neville had put some sort of disclaimer in the movie, like at the beginning of the movie, maybe like just text on screen or even at the end of the movie, just somewhere that says some of Anthony Bourdain's narration here has been re recreated with whatever the hell it is. The mm -hmm. thing. I feel like if that was just in the movie, none of this would be happening, but it's the fact that no one knew this until Morgan Neville admitted it. And I'm sure he's fucking kicking himself right now. Cause he's probably like, oh, I should have never told anyone this. Cause if he had never said that, I honestly don't think anyone would have 
ever known. Like, no, because yeah. it's you know, uh, even if you, you know, aside from the ethics of it, it's it's like seamless. There's there, there's nothing that indicates this isn't real audio of Anthony Bourdain. Like it mm-hmm. sounds literally like he just recorded himself reading this email. So I feel like again, like if he if Morgan Neville had just put some sort of disclaimer in the movie somewhere. Or failing that had just had someone else reading that email. I mean, and the, the thing that that is, I don't know if the word is ironic or not, but the scene starts off with, I forget, the whoever, the recipient of the email reading it. And then it, it fades into, mm. quote unquote, Anthony Bourdain's voice. And if he had just kept it yeah. to be the guy who got the email reading the email, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So it, it's, you know, I, I don't think... You know, I'm seeing a lot of people throw Morgan Neville under the bus, and, and I don't think he was trying to be, uh, what's the word, sinister with this. I don't mm-hmm. think you know. I do think he had the best intentions, but I feel like you know he could have avoided all of this if he had just taken like one or two of those steps that I mentioned. Yeah, I think I yeah I agree with that because you know the the fact that he brought it up. Um, you know, this isn't something that like somebody uncovered during an investigation or something. He was like freely offering this information and was clearly like uh, interested in it and maybe like even proud of how you know, good a job they, they did putting this thing together and getting a, you know, hiring a team to be able to run AI on this model and stuff. And like, like you said, I mean, the results sound just like him. It's, it's really um, kind of amazing in that regard, but yeah, there's just, there's this whole, uh, I guess, murkiness that sort of comes up around it. And I guess, you know, there's questions about like how far is too far. And like, I don't know what, I mean, um, are there any, big picture takeaways that you have here, Chris, because I know that, you know, we've talked about the concept of deep fakes and stuff before. And, um, and I, I guess like Space Jam, maybe like if we look at the new Space Jam movie, right, that that movie features LeBron James and the Looney Tunes, um, just running through a bunch of different fictional worlds and characters and stuff. And like, you have the likenesses of a lot of uh, famous actors who show up in that movie that those actors, a lot of whom were dead, didn't sign off on that kind of stuff. So like, <laughs> I, I feel like we're only at the beginning of a an era where topics like this are going to come up pretty frequently. Do you have any just like broader thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I feel like like public figures, famous people, actors, all that, you know, uh, politicians, celebrities, you know, famous people are probably going to have to start putting like you know as ghoulish as it sounds they're gonna have to start putting like things in their wills where it's like mm-hmm. when i die please don't put my voice in a, in a coke commercial right it's <laughs> right. like you know we're, we are on the, this you know the, the technology is is getting better and better and i'm saying better in terms of quality not better in terms of uh <laughs> ethics uh you know the technology is getting better every day and we're you know we're gonna reach a point where you can i mean i Kind of, we're kind of already there. You can literally seamlessly put words in someone's mouth. And yeah, you know, Morgan Neville, he's using Anthony Bourdain's own words here. But the fact that that tech exists means you could easily have Anthony Bourdain's voice out there being like, go to Burger King. I right. love the Whopper and shit like that. <laughs> right. So it's, you know, it, you know, where do you draw the line? Like you could say like, oh, I had only the best intentions, but uh, you know, that, you know, that, 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 that doesn't really matter if, if it's, you know, wrong. And 
you know, I don't, uh, I, you know, I don't believe in like a fucking, you know, afterlife or anything. So I don't think Anthony Bourdain is like up in heaven being like, damn you for you. Like, you know, but, but, you know, I, I do feel like people do want to be remembered in a certain way. And I do think Anthony Bourdain would probably not be cool with someone taking his voice and using it this way. But at the same time, you know, there is that, that, that caveat where it's like, well, what the hell does he care? He, he is literally nowhere right now. He is, he is non-existent. So it's like, I don't, I don't know where you draw that line, but I, I do feel like we are reaching a point where you're just going to have to, people are going to have to start putting this in their, their wills where it's like, when I die, please don't put me in space jam three. Yeah, (laughs) man. I really, I just like, I have such complicated feelings about this because I feel like the fact that it is something that he wrote, I, I just keep going back to that. And yes, in this one instance, um, and I just, I don't know. I, I certainly think he would have hated it if his likeness and and voice was used <laughs> to do a Burger King commercial or something like that. But, you know, in this one case, like I can, I'll just say it's very easy for me to see how Morgan Neville and, and his team, um, especially if they, as they said, like checked with people and and maybe got the sign off from some people, even if, if his widow seems to disagree with that, uh, that, that he would think that, okay, it's, it's okay in this instance. It's like, it's like right at the very top of the mountain before you, you know, if you take one step in either direction, you fall off onto a slippery slope and like, they're co- sort of like teetering on the edge there for me. Um, but I'm curious what, what our listeners have to say about this. I'm, I'm sure this is, I mean, th- this, this topic has, raised a lot of conversation because people have very strong feelings about this. So I'm, I'm curious if anybody has any uh, cogent thoughts, thoughts that they want to send in to us about, um, you know, this topic and maybe like the future of, of these kinds of incidents and, uh, and, or the, the Bourdain specific incident, I would love to read them. So um, if you want to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and uh, any mailbag questions, you can do that to us. Uh, you can send those to us at Peter at slash Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. And you can find uh, the written version of this uh, board of uh, this uh, Morgan Neville interview uh, linked in the show notes. If you'd like to read that and share it and pass it around or whatever, go ahead. That would be great. Uh, Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features that you can find on the site. And you can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all of the popular podcast apps. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you all for listening, and we will talk to you on Monday.